1: getting another week with you on Into the Parabnormal from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. I am Jeremy Scott. Hello, one. Hello, all. It is good to have you with us tonight, wherever you may be. Here from the Pacific Northwest, we're going to talk tonight about New World Oppression. seemingly our rights are under attack even more so today than probably any other time in my lifetime, unless I was not paying attention. But that's even more the case now, that the state of being free is becoming even more restricted, especially under the tyrannical, oppressive society in which we are living in. If you look around... You see those signs all over the place. You don't have this. You don't have that. You can't come in here. You can't go there. Yada, yada, yada. They're trying to take away people's guns. They're trying to force vaccines. Uh, At least on a constitutional level, they've taken away some abortion rights, although some states are... Reinstating abortion rights for their own people. And in the current society that we live in, it seems like not a day goes by where a, another tyrannical government official says something stupid, puts their foot in their mouth, and leads us even further down the road towards New World Oppression. My guest tonight is the host of The Secret Teachings and author of the new book, Liberty Shrugged, a compendium of liberty over tyranny. He is Ryan Gable. He is here. He is now. Good evening, Ryan.
2: Jeremy, thank you for having me on the show tonight.
1: Uh, It's my pleasure. However, I can't say that in this day and age that we're currently living in when rights are being stripped from people, maybe not every day, but it does appear that way. Uh, certainly, it it appeared that way in 2021, where every day there was a new mandate for this, and a new mandate for that. What is your view on the whole situation?
2: Well, obviously, it's a complicated matter and a controversial matter to to break down and to uh, discuss in only 30 minutes. But we'll try our best tonight. My issue now is looking into the last two and a half years of COVID 19, SARS CoV 2 restrictions, mandates, policies, resolutions, etc. and seeing how that translates either as a conspiracy or as a coincidence and personally I don't care which one it is. I'm more concerned with the consequences and the actual actions of government officials and even everyday people who go along not recognizing the either conspiracy or the coincidences we're seeing and I'm going to talk about this tonight on the secret teachings. We're seeing how SARS-CoV-2, COV-2, is turning into CO2. We're being told that we need to lock down. We've had the New York Post. We've had the Guardian. We've had other magazines, newspapers tell us that carbon dioxide emissions need to be reduced. And we can only do this with lockdowns. For time's sake, we don't have enough time to get into the specific details. But they're telling us a lockdown will be able to save the planet from CO2. Quick note, CO2 emissions remained close to what they had been. They were reduced a small percentage under what the IPCC has said is needed over the next 30, 40, 50 years, depending on what report you look at. And they've also told us that methane has actually increased in the atmosphere, which is a worse greenhouse gas than CO2. Yet, we're not really concerned about that. We're focused on CO2. So The issue here, just like with SARS-CoV-2, we didn't have much of an issue with obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, prescription drug overdoses, fentanyl, etc. We were focused on a particle that we couldn't see. And I'm afraid that we're doing the same thing with CO2. We're focused on a gas that we can't see. So you can see that it's very similar in nature. Not only lockdowns, but you can't breathe. You need to put something over your face to prevent other people from getting sick. Now you need to literally or figuratively cover your mouth, don't have children, don't have a business because it just emits too much carbon dioxide. So the difference between these two things, climate change and SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19, the so-called pandemic, I think are really summed up by Prince or now King Charles and Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum. Both of them have said that COVID-19 was not an existential threat. And this was in the middle of the pandemic, Jeremy but they said that climate change was an existential threat. So regardless of what you or anybody else or myself thinks, when people were supposedly dropping like flies and dying and the ICUs were overwhelmed and it was nonstop constant red alerts, we had Klaus Schwab and we had Prince Charles at the time at the World Economic Forum telling us the COP26 conference, I think is when he said it, in a warlike footing, but it's not an existential threat. The existential threat is climate change. When all these people were dying, we were told, these guys unelected literal nazi backgrounds royal bloodlines were telling us that the real threat is the climate issue it's not really the virus now if you were to post that online if i was to post that online it would be censored blocked we'd be banned shadow banned we'd lose our account
1: into timeout
2: so, yep yeah, absolutely you'd be put into timeout put your nose in the corner count to 100 or something there'd be an issue so my 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 answer to your question is when we look at this transition that is happening now We can see how it didn't work for the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, but it's supposedly going to work for the climate change issue we have. In both cases, I think it can be summed up even easier with what Joe Biden said a few days ago on 60 Minutes. I'm sure everybody's heard it. He said the pandemic's over, but one thing he didn't say is that the White House, after he made that statement on 60 Minutes, said they are not going to relinquish their Trump-era emergency executive order. Much like we've seen in states like California, states like New York and cities all across the country. The pandemic might be over perceptually or literally, but the emergency powers, they stay in place, Jeremy.
1: And that tells you it's about control more than anything.
2: It absolutely does. And in fact, I think the best example going back to the pandemic is, well, Governor Newsom or countless governors across the country having parties with their health Uh, um, uh, officials with no masks, no social distancing. Obama had a big birthday party with elitists, wealthy, rich people. Obama had his new propane tank installed in one of his multi-million dollar mansions. But you're not allowed to use that type of energy. You're not allowed to have the party in the middle of the pandemic. I mean, the mayor of Los Angeles said he cut off your power. He cut off your water if you had family and friends over in Los Angeles in the city. But then the governor can go to sporting events and have parties and get together at fancy restaurants. I mean, that shows you that they were never concerned or scared about a so-called virus. They were never concerned about the pandemic. This was all about top-down control and power. And I think that when you look at the historical context of this, and I'd like to explain that to you if you'd let me, I think that it makes a lot more sense. Yeah, please expand upon that, Ryan. So you mentioned my new book. It's in the promo, "Liberty Shrugged," and I I just sent it to you last night. So I doubt you've had time to read it because it's a big one. But back in 1952, yeah, it's a it's a huge book, Uh, and I appreciate you asking me to come on to talk about it as well. Uh, In 1952, real quick story: if anybody's heard my show before, the secret teachings, they probably have heard this already. Uh, Please bear with me. There, back in 1952, there was a story that was spread in Beijing, China. The Chinese government told their people. That there was a series of viruses and a series of uh, pestilences that were spreading across the the land, different parts of China. And as a result of that, they had either by force or by coercion, at this point we were a couple of years into the communist revolution, so people were tending to do what they were told or they'd be beaten or starved to death. So people were coerced or they made the decision because they believed it, that there were all these diseases spreading. And they said that these diseases were being spread by the Americans in particular. So here's the story. They spent most of their medical resources. They spent a tremendous amount of money, time, energy, etc. They sprayed toxic chemicals everywhere. People began wearing masks, cloth masks, which they continue to do to this day now for pollution. But it started in the 50s. They locked down people in their homes and anybody who went after the insects, they went to round up the insects that were supposedly spreading disease. The people that were catching the insects and killing them and bringing them to the party would receive red flags that they could hang on their homes and they were considered good members of society. Those that were not catching as many of these insects, it could have been rats or flies or bedbugs, etc. They were considered bad enemies or bad class elements. So they would be flying a black flag. They weren't allowed to fly the red flag of the party. It's very similar to what we've seen with COVID-19. And by the way, even in the 50s, they were forcing the Chinese people who were locked down in their homes that they would not be able to leave their homes or leave the communities they lived in if they did step out of their home. They were not allowed to leave those communities unless they had received At the time, what they considered to be a vaccine against these various diseases. Now, This is all documented in a communist party or CCP archives. And it's terrifyingly similar, I think, to what we've seen in the last couple of years. What do you think, Jeremy?
1: It's playing out almost to a T as far as that's concerned, Ryan. But there are some other examples besides COVID-19, I think, that are fairly obvious, uh, particularly uh, the guns. And also, uh, some might
2: view uh, the abortion situation the same way. Sure. I mean, if if you want to talk about these two things in particular, I have a slightly different view on guns. I, I think the Second Amendment is a right to bear arms, which is a right to keep and protect yourself. Keep weapons. That could be a gun. That could be anything, because arms means weapons. It's basically a right that you have to defend yourself, your family, your property, to allow you to be on equal ground with an aggressor. And when it comes to the argument over military weapons, I tell people that when that amendment was written, that amendment codified the idea that you could have, yes, an arm, a firearm. But at the time, the firearms that they were using were the brown best muskets, and those were the same guns that were being used by the British military, the British regulars. So most of what the colonists were using, what what the revolutionaries were using, a lot of it they got from France. I actually tell, tell a little bit of the story in my book, Liberty Shrugged. It was the same exact gunpowder, the same exact uh, uh, musket balls, the same exact muskets that the British regulars were using. Same exact weapons, i.e. weapons of war. Now that's a debatable legal issue today. We want to discuss what's legal, what's a weapon of war, etc., That's another time, another place. But in terms of a right to bear arms, I think the idea of eliminating or restricting access to guns isn't honestly so much about guns. Perhaps it is historically. It's not so much about guns as the idea that you have a right to defend yourself, to defend your home, to defend your property. And I don't know what you've seen up there in Oregon, Jeremy, but the places I've lived, and I think a lot of listeners have probably recognized this too, whether you're in your home, in your car, or you're walking down the street, in a lot of places, if the police haven't been told to stand down by the mayor and the city council, what ends up happening is you feel like you can't defend yourself or your family or your property because if you do that, yep, the other person is going to sue you or the city on behalf of that person is going to sue you. We saw that guy, the Asian gentleman, defend his store from those two thugs. Thank God, God those charges
1: got dropped and reversed because they came to their senses, but it took public outrage.
2: Yes, that they were going to they were suing the man who defended himself. That is the topsy turvy upside down world that has been created as a result of legalizing criminal activity and decriminalizing illegal activity and deincentivizing policing and prosecution of criminals. And that creates a dangerous, unsafe society
1: it is that way in oregon uh we have record high crime uh, homelessness and that brings a whole new element with it you know as a somebody who's personally been assaulted while just trying to uh you know get to work uh in april uh, of 2020 in the beginning of the pandemic uh and i guess the ptsd that is that has followed since then and uh you know just having to look over your shoulder just because of of what i do And also because of the city that I live in and how lawless it has
2: become. Well, you know, the whole idea of of defunding police, this argument that is highly politicized, I think that it's a lot more just like the issue of the Second Amendment. It's a lot more complex, but yet in some ways a lot simpler than the simple left-right paradigm of, of political bickering. And I think it goes something like this. Just like in 1952, we had that story in Beijing which Beijing, by the way, later admitted that there was no disease, there were no diseases spreading. It was all made up to get people to comply. They admitted that, I think it was like 1953, around a year later, they admitted it was all made up. Well, very similar thing happened in the 1950s and of course, to the lead up in the late 1940s of the communist revolution there in China, uh, overthrowing the nationalists. And what happened there was they gave famous, what we know them today as, the Red Guards. Even before they had Red Guards, Or what we would call brown shirts or black shirts, you know, Gestapo, etc. We had Red Guards that were given authority to, and they were usually young kids, authority to rape, to pillage. They could steal, they could burn buildings down. And they did this and they ripped statues down. They, they, They destroyed books. They did this in the name of social justice. And this was really kicked off in the 60s during the Cultural Revolution. Now, I don't believe that everything happening today, Jeremy, is communist. I think what we're watching is a merging of the communist and fascist ideologies. So it's not just government or the party taking over everything and trying to plan society. And it's not corporations and government merging together and crushing opposition. It's all of it merging together into a total globalist power structure.
1: It almost reminds you of uh, you know the work to abolish uh, slavery and and the fight uh, that that literally ensued as a result.
2: Yes, and in fact, I talk about that in the book quite extensively. I have a chapter on the context of historical slavery. This is a very important point. I think it's really for the United States of America. It's at the forefront of political discussions today. And I usually started off by telling people this: if white people are considered guilty because of what some white person that you may or may not have been related to in the past may or may not have even done, then if a single white person throughout American history, let's say, did something to, I don't know, free slaves to keep things very black and white, then that person and all white people subsequently should be relieved of their white guilt. And in fact, we find not one, we find not two or a few dozen or a few hundred, we find thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. They start in Congress with people like Lyman Trumbull, Thaddeus Stevens, William Fresenden, Benjamin Wade. These are names that we never hear about in American history. These were the men that even before Lincoln signed his Emancipation Proclamation, they had gotten slaves freed in the immediate district of Columbia where they had direct authority. They actually lobbied Lincoln to free slaves, although later it was turned more into a war measure. And of course, the Democratic Party in the South, yes, I understand it's a different Democratic Party today. The Democratic Party in the South continued the practice of slavery long after slaves were emancipated. They did it through different definitions and different words, like apprenticeship. And it's a really complex issue, but it's really amazing when you start to learn these little tiny details, like, for example, Racism was never the, the, the justification for slavery, Jeremy, in the United States or anywhere in the world. Slavery goes back to the very foundation of human civilization and probably even before that. White people enslaved white people, black, black, Hispanic, Hispanic. I mean, even before we have the cultures that we know of today, people were enslaving other people for literally tens of thousands of years. And in fact, Europe, when Europe stopped allowing slavery when it became a religious issue, which at the time Christians didn't want to enslave anybody who was Christian. They said it was okay to enslave Jews or Muslims, etc. And Muslims say it's okay to enslave Christians and Jews. Jews were like, hey, it's okay to enslave Christians and Muslims, but not Jews. What we had happen was that Europe started to, and Britain was the first country to do this with the Somerset decision. I have a whole chapter on that in the book. Europe started to move away from the practice of slavery. So the people that still were practicing in large part bigger uh, corporate entities, if you will, they started to look other places for their slaves. And rather than enslaving other Europeans, and the same thing was happening in Asia and other parts of like Eastern Europe, uh, what was happening was the Europeans, just to use them because that's what we think of when we think of slavery, white and black, they started going to Africa where African warlords and African chieftains had rounded up their own people, and they were running their own slave trade in Africa and largely with the Arab world, where although we know about the Middle Passage, you hear about the Middle Passage, the Middle Passage, the Atlantic slave trade, it's like there's a huge piece of history missing. There were more slaves taken from Africa across the Sahara Desert into Arab countries than ever made it across the Atlantic, alive or dead. They don't tell you that the United States France and Britain sent warships to for for decades and thousands of Navy men died to guard and to protect the Atlantic coast of the uh, the 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 uh, the continent of Africa to prevent slave ships from bringing their goods to other countries. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, he owned slaves by inheritance. He recognized at the time. And this is what this is what's peculiar. It's not peculiar that the man owns slaves. It's peculiar that a man who owns slaves would recognize that the system of enslavement was wrong. It would work to emancipate many of his slaves and work in places like Virginia against the pushback of other powerful people to eliminate the institution of slavery. And Thomas Jefferson as president actually ended the importation of slaves into the United States in the early 1800s. And this is where history, I think, gets really, really interesting, is that The Democratic Party in 1828 was set up intentionally to preserve the institution of slavery. And where American history in particular gets really interesting is we're told that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all these, the Declaration of Independence, even, all these things are so evil and so racist. What they don't tell you is when you look at the Confederate Constitution, I have a chapter on this in my new book too. The Confederate Constitution actually enshrines, it actually says this. That the institution of Negro slavery shall be preserved in those territories. It actually says, I'll read it to you, in all such territory, the institution of Negro slavery as it now exists in the Confederate states shall be recognized and protected by Congress and by the territorial government. So the big question is why would Confederate states secede and write their own constitution which preserved slavery if our constitution, which Frederick Douglass, by the way, called a glorious liberty document, if that constitution already preserved the institution of slavery? See, these are questions that we're not allowed to ask, and they're little tiny details that we're not made aware of. I try to make people aware of these details to provide context to both American history and world history, because today, Jeremy, we have not just in China, we have tens of millions of people enslaved in conditions that are arguably worse than anything we saw throughout human history the last 200 years. I mean, even Irish peasants lived in worse conditions than yeah. slaves in the American South. So the, it's, it's not justifying slavery. It's putting context to the narrative and the story. Because if you're a white person, a black person, you don't need to feel inferior or superior. We're all human beings. And we need to understand this historical context because people are using it to divide and to take control of the means of every aspect of society, production and economics, uh, his history. He who controls the past controls the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Why does race have so much to do with all of this?
2: Well, yes, I did mention that race was the final death row of the institution of slavery in the United States, as as we know our history today. Racism was the, on the surface, you can see that somebody has a different quality than you, darker skin. This is what southern plantation owners, who largely were corporations were run by corporations big banks banking institutions and the whole slave trade was run by a handful of 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 individuals essentially and even plantation owners were few and far between most in the south never owned slaves and there were plenty of rich wealthy black people who were never slaves who owned slaves whether family members or others so racism became the definition of slavery as we know it today but it wasn't the original justification it was the death to justify that white people in particular, but others as well, could own these individuals in particular, Negro slaves as the Confederate Constitution says, as a justification to own those people and property and to protect those people and property as, as being a products of the plantation system. And now they've changed the plantation system in a lot of ways. It might not be the same Democratic Party, but Democrats and Republicans even use the same kinds of tactics and policies. So you don't really have to whip somebody, if you will, into submission and force them to do hard labor without any kind of payment. Now you pay them to do little to nothing, to not contribute to society. Uh, Thomas Sowell, the the black scholar, genius, brilliant man. He documented in his book, uh, White Liberals and Black Rednecks, documented quite extensively, actually, how we have a system that is largely promoted by the left, but it's also the right, that shows black culture as being this culture infested with all these typical, stereotypical things that you would see, yes, in rap music or something like that. But it's actually a counterculture that has nothing to do with blacks. It has nothing to do with Africa. It has everything to do with people from Scotland, places like Ireland, and the fringe parts of places like England who migrated to the south and it was the culture of those places that was a white culture that was planted into the black communities. And it maintained. It was maintained in those communities and in white communities, largely as a result of poor, impoverished people. And so when we understand the history of that, we understand that this has nothing to do with black. It has nothing to do with white. It has everything to do with perception and context. We understand that. We understand that America is not what we think it is in a very positive way and furthermore western civilization and colonialism as terrible as these things have been in some ways they actually were the driving forces that ended the institution of slavery jeremy
1: so as you said in the beginning you weren't sure if it was conspiracy or coincidence
2: are you leaning towards one of those i think it's a combination i think some things honestly are coincidental but i think a lot of it is conspiracy, although I don't necessarily think conspiracy is the right word, because these people, I mean, you can look at the event 201 scenario, you can look at Zbigniew Brzezinski's work, uh, Yuval Harari, you can look at people that are admitted globalists, the Rockefellers, they write books and papers on how to do these types of things. And I think from the COV2 to the CO2, from the pandemic to climate change, what you're seeing is the rise of scientism, The rise of technocracy and the rise of emerging, not of corporations and state, but of corporations, states, and the collectivized society of a communist utopia, merging fascism and communism together, all authoritarianism under the guise of progressivism, scientism, and technocracy. So you have this medical technocratic state where everything, as you see in China, is monitored, cataloged, quantified. And nobody has the ability to even think for themselves. Everything is done for them. And I find that to be a very dangerous, dangerous, dangerous place that throughout human history, when we've seen things like that, usually takes hundreds of years to come out from underneath of that type of oppression. And with machines and technology today, we don't know what's going to happen, but it's not a good thing. And we should limit our exposure and we should inform ourselves and become knowledgeable about these things so we don't fall under authoritarianism of this type.
1: A minute left. What do you think we should keep our eyes on as far as maybe the next go round of uh, trying to take our our rights away from us?
2: Well, again, I think part of it is the transition from COV2 to CO2. It's using the same failed policies of COVID-19 or climate change. And I don't think that's coming. I know that's not coming. It started in 2021. And we're seeing the beginning stages of it now being implemented. Banks just this weekend said they might have to implement lockdowns and COVID-19 procedures to deal with rolling blackouts that they're blaming not on energy and electrics and electrical uh, cars and things like that. The power grid in California, they're blaming it on Putin, but they're also blaming it on climate change. I I think that's the next big stage.
1: Ryan, always a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Your show is on at 10 Pacific, 1 a.m. Eastern, thesecretteachings.info and at groundzero.radio. Take care, bud.
2: That's correct. Thank you so much, Jeremy.
1: Bye-bye. Always a pleasure. Ryan Gable from The Secret Teachings, and we're back tomorrow night because it's Tuesday then on Into the Parabnormal, and we'll talk to you then, friends, from the cold, dark depths of a secret dungeon somewhere deep in the remote Pacific Northwest. God bless. Good night.